You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Longform. I'm Max Linsky, and my co-hosts Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff are not here today. This is a special Friday episode, our first special episode of any kind. Uh, but luckily we are joined by our fourth co-host, the long-lost Joshua Behrman, uh, who actually is the guy who came up with the idea for this podcast. And then as soon as he uh, put the idea in our heads, Josh got very, very busy because uh, his 2007 Wired story uh, is the basis for Ben Affleck's new movie, Argo, which premieres today. Uh, so we decided we'd call Josh up and uh, see what it's like to have a story of yours become the most talked about movie in America. There he is, Joshua Merrick. All right, Josh, we, we, will, uh, we will get quickly into uh, your role in this massive Hollywood movie. Uh, but before we do, I think we need to get into your role in uh, this very, very small uh, <laughs> literary journalism podcast. Sure. Let's start there. Let's, we'll bury the lead. I just, I just want to, I, I think that people should know that uh, this thing was your idea. Yeah, well, I, since, especially since um, uh, I invented the whole idea of the podcast <laughs> and talking about magazine stories, um, I don't know if it actually can be claimed to be a proprietary concept. Um, but I did sort of, you know, like had been thinking about it for a while, thought it was cool, talked to you guys. I think you guys have been thinking about something similar. And then with Evan, did a little bit of brainstorming and then, uh, you know, promptly uh, disappeared and delegated all the work to you. So it's really worked out quite well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got us really excited and, uh, and then pretty much haven't done anything. Yeah. I'm like, a, I'm like a motivator. I'm like a, I'm like a parachute, you know, sort of ideas guy. Come in, <laughs> you know, yeah, sure. get everybody worked up, hand it off yeah. and then move on to the next thing. Um, but I, I think, you know, whatever, I, I can't be, uh, too harsh about it. Cause you had like a pretty good excuse. You've been pretty busy. Uh, it's true. It's true. I've been sort of running around, um, both trying to finish a couple of stories and dealing with the run up to, uh, the real release of this movie Argo, which, which was adapted from a piece of mine that I wrote, uh, by now is five and a half years ago and wired. Okay. So let's, uh, for anyone who uh, is listening and has not looked at the internet or a newspaper in the last like five days, Argo is the new film directed by Ben Affleck. It opens today. And uh, Josh, maybe you can just like walk us through the, the story you wrote for Wired. Sure. So the story um, is, it takes place during the Iran hostage crisis in 1979, or it started in 1979. The hostage crisis went on for 444 days, right at the beginning um, as the embassy was sort of being slowly taken over uh, by the revolutionary students slash militants, um, there was a building in the back, a 
uh, I think it was, the, it was the consulate, and it had faced the street. So the people in there decided that they could, you know, rather than get taken hostage like everybody else, so they didn't really know what was going to happen, but it was very clearly dangerous. They ran out the back and escaped sort of out into hostile Tehran. And then it became clear that the people in the rest of the embassy were going to be held. There was sort of suddenly no official U.S. presence in the country. Nobody could help them. So they were sort of stuck on the lam in Tehran. And there were six Americans who eventually all wound up uh, in the Canadian ambassador's residence and uh, sort of took them in. The ambassador at the time was this guy, Ken Taylor, this very kind of suave and stylish diplomat, uh, kind of cut an interesting uh, figure in the diplomatic community. He took them in, and it was quite dangerous because, I mean, the place was in turmoil. There was a revolution in the streets. There was no real way to get out of the country. The clock was sort of ticking. A couple months had gone by. The uh, administration didn't really know what to do, how to get these people out sort of, you know, down to the wire. And then uh, in stepped Tony Mendez, who was a CIA operative. And he was part of the, he was in a, he was in a part of the CIA known as the Office of Technical Services. And in, I, think, I think it was like the authentication branch of the Office of Technical Services, <laughs> which means he was like a forger and kind of like deception guy in the, that's, the OTS is sort of where they would make like Fidel's exploding cigars and like put a, like wire a mic into a living cat and stuff like that. So he was kind of, he was known as the master of disguise. <laughs> that was like his informal moniker. And cause he had been involved in all these sort of deception operations and whatnot. And so he came up with this plan to uh, do an exfiltration, as they call it in the trade, where he would go in and uh, he would hook up with them in their you know, dangerous limbo and go out with them under this elaborate cover story, which then also is an insane twist and which plays a prominent role in the movie and in the article, which is that the idea was Tony would pretend with the hostages to be, or the house guests, to be a Hollywood location uh, production on a location scout in Tehran. And uh, so that's what he did. And it worked. You know, he like went, created this cover story, hooked up with them. They kind of put on these identities and went out to the airport and managed to get home safely. Um, and so it was this kind of like little known silver lining in an otherwise, you know, kind of disastrous chapter in American history and whatnot. And uh, so I first heard about this story from a friend of mine. And, um, and, you know, sort of said, that was a great, that's a great idea. And I kind of tracked everybody down and put the whole narrative together. And, I mean, it, it is a completely insane story. It's like, uh, it's hard to believe it as you're reading it. <laughs> Once you started reporting, I mean, after you first heard about it, how quickly did you realize, like, uh, okay, this is starting to sound like a movie. This, this feels like a movie. <laughs> well, I, I first heard about it. The guy that I heard about it that told me about the story, is his name is David Clowance, and he is a movie guy, uh, but it's sort of a very independent movie producer where his whole thing is he kind of finds these unusual true stories and takes them around Hollywood and, and tries to set them up as as movies. And he'd been doing that for a while and, and you know, with some success and whatnot. And, and, but he had tried, you know, he had, he, he knew a little, he knew pieces of this story. Like it was, had been declassified in 1997 mm -hmm. as part of the CIA's 50th anniversary Jubilee celebrations. And, um, so there were bits of it in the newspaper, but that wasn't really enough to quite get the story. So he was the one that kind of had this idea. He's like, you know, this is a cool story. It's up your alley. Cause I was getting into sort of narrative yarns in unusual settings or true crime stories or whatever and 
you know, he's like, you know, see, see what you can do with the story and put it all together, and then maybe we'll be able to, you know, maybe it will, it'll, you know, it'll get people interested in this right. movie. And so it was, it was like a, a possible movie idea from the start. It was, although I had never had any experience with that, so I didn't really believe that that was going to happen. You know, I was like, <laughs> sure, or whatever, you know, I mean, I don't know. And, uh, you know, I was only, all I knew about, uh, even though I grew up in Los Angeles, I didn't grow up around that stuff, and my writing, sort of at that time, I was at the LA Weekly, um, which was a once great publication, the Los Angeles' Village Voice, um, and uh, where you could do all this kind of great writing, and that's, but it wasn't movie-oriented at all, so I didn't know anything about that. And so, in fact, I remember sitting as I was finishing the story, and like it came out you know, pretty good. I was like, oh, this is kind of reads... You know, it was sort of the most kind of caperish story I had done, so it kind of read that way. You know, it sort of wound up being written you know, cinematically. And that's also kind of how it was presented in the magazine, right? Yeah, then Wired, the art department read the story and were like, oh, let's, uh, uh, you know, sort of illustrate this thing with storyboard versions sort of of the story. And so the opening, the facing spread, it was like a good eight, ten page spread, and the facing opening, facing page opening spread had a big giant storyboard of the <laughs> of the story, of, you know, the narrative. And so that was obviously cool. I actually remember I was looking at that, and I was like, you know what, this would make a cool movie. I was sitting with David, I was showing it to him. And we were like, this would be perfect for George Clooney, you know. <laughs> and um, it very quickly, in fact, turned out that George Clooney wanted it. And so, you know, like not long after David and I had been sort of having our daydream, we were, you know, kind of had this project that George Clooney had taken into, you know, quickly into the Empyrean Heights of sort of Hollywood land. Uh, so tell me a little bit about how, uh, like, uh, how closely do you work with the screenwriter in, in a situation like this? I mean, are you, uh, are you like fact checking the work? Well, no, I'm not fact checking, but I was, you know, um, I mean, both Tony and I, uh, are consultants on the movie. I think Tony was much more heavily consulted since like Ben Affleck plays him and, uh, you know, he was there and everything, but I had obviously done like a lot of research and I Ford, I like, you know, compiled all of it and there's all these extra interviews and material and whatever documentaries and books and stuff that I gathered. I sent like a whole couple boxes to the production company immediately. And then eventually when they had the screenwriter, he went through all that stuff. And then as the scripts got written and sort of the development process continued, you know, I would look at things and sort of like offer some suggestions or details or things that I remembered or some interesting thing. I would put in my two cents every so often. I don't really, you know, like, to be honest, like, Chris uh, was so good that he didn't really need that much help. Like, he intuited, you know, sort of, like, the, the like, atmosphere and the tone and all the details that were sort of in that story onto, into script format, and you know, adapting it into script format, and his first draft was really good. I mean, it's like, I've seen now other... I've gone through the adaptation process with other stories of mine that have since been optioned, and like that does not usually happen, you know. I'd say right. screenwriters often need quite a bit of help and like understanding like what the real true texture of a character or story is, and you know what they would supply on their own. I always find to you know kind of like like miss the mark, and it's kind of better to work from the real material and whatever. Um, you know, but Kristen, you know, Chris did all that and supplied like the structure, like, you know, he moved a few things around and he invented some dramatic, a couple of really important dramatic sequences that like up the ante and like really create a climactic third act and all this kind of stuff that sort of isn't in the story, you know, but for the most part, like from him on the way up, like in the, with, including Clooney and Ben Affleck, who 
is a very smart dude and uh, is intensely interested in the Middle East already and totally steeped himself in like history and the, you know culture of the time and all the details. Like there was this real uh, a lot of attention paid to like to realism and to make it feel natural and 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 it works. Like it feels very like immediate and vivid and gripping and it's kind of what I imagined <laughs> as I was writing the story. Like it's quite shocking to see it sort of up on the screen. That's got to be pretty like uh, it's got to be pretty satisfying to see it like uh, stick so closely to the narrative that you laid out and this sort of structure and uh, to see really like see your story up there. Yeah, I mean that is exciting. I um, I I I didn't quite realize even until it happened like how exciting that would be. You know, like I always thought it was oh, this is cool. You know, even when it was getting made, like I mean it's all way above my pay grade. You know, it's not like Ben Affleck calls me and is like, hey dude. So I was thinking about in the one scene, you know, <laughs> like this, like, what do you think about, and, you know, but like, but he also, he and Chris and everybody were sort of really animated by that as a true story and didn't really sort of, you know, and like, and like the article, the article was a big part of everybody read it and all the cast and, you know, along with the other research and people, you know, liked that aspect of it. So it wasn't like I was also just sort of, um, you know, I think a lot of times the originator of the source material is like, not even the lowest guy on the totem pole, but not even on the totem pole. Right. Um, but I sort of was lucky that this that's kind of the true story was partly what this was about. So I got to kind of be involved with some. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like the stereotype is that the, uh, you know, the original source, that, that person's also like uh, bitter, you know, and kind yeah. of like uh, grumbling <laughs> yeah. on the sidelines. I was know. It, yeah. Did you feel conflicted at all about the stuff that wasn't true about like the made up scenes? No, not really. I mean... No, because, I mean, in fact, like, you know, even the article, like, ah, kind of like, even when Nick was editing it, we were sort of like, how can we make the end more exciting? Because it's like, they just kind of get out. I mean, there are some delays and some, there's a lot of tension, like, because, all right, you know, they've been hiding for three months, right? So that's dangerous on its own. But it is even more dangerous to sort of like come out of hiding onto the streets of Tehran, especially going to the airport. Revolutionary Gardens, like, in the airport, like, looking for people, right? So, you know, it's, and they're, and they're pretending to be something. So if they get caught, like, also being, sort of, like, being duplicitous, then they are certainly going to get accused to be spies, even though they aren't. And then that even makes it worse. So they're, like, doubly exposing themselves. So it was super dangerous, and it was crazy, and they had all this tension. And, like, it, and in fact, they didn't have, like, the right forms at a certain point. It's kind of a complicated aspect of the uh, immigration at the Maribot airport at the time, which is actually also is a detail that finds its way into the movie. But they got snagged at, you know, some counters and the plane was delayed and, you know, and, um, but like nobody chased them down the tarmac, uh, which is what <laughs> happens in the movie, which is very exciting. Um, so, you know, even in the story, we're like, oh, we kind of need to, you know, sort of try to figure out how to make it, how to make it read a little bit better. And then of course, once it's being adapted, of course, you know, they're going to have to come up with something. And Chris Terrio, what he says, and which I find, which I also sort of felt as I was watching it, but then I later heard him say what he, what, what he did there. So what happens at the end, not to be a spoiler, uh, but like they get chased and, and then they get away. Um, but they, um, there's this like crazy chase sequence in the airport, which uh, he sort of said like, that was like an external dramatization of like, the insane internal tension and fear that was going, you know, like they thought that there was somebody on there heels at all times and that at any right. moment they could be yanked at a line or the plane could be stopped or whatever so like you know so there's so it's sort of like true in essence to their you know experience right right it's some kind of representation of what must be like a, a completely insane level of anxiety 
Yeah, yeah. And I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, it is sort of like an emotional justification for like having to create like some drama. Um, but I think it's a fair one. And, um, and I found it to be kind of instructive as a writer because he also did other things where he made, he was much more, he was, the script is much better at sort of making it feel dangerous when they're, when the hostage, when the house guests are kind of trapped for all that time. Like I kind of, glossed over some of those things. Actually, <laughs> I looked back at my article and I was yeah, like... Yeah, I mean, the piece kind of like hints that like they sort of had a pretty good time. <laughs> it's like, there's a lot of scotch on hand. They played yeah, board games. Yeah, totally. Like, I was struck by that. I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. Like, I liked those details. You know, when you're writing a narrative piece, like you were just looking for like that, you know, one really specific detail that then like makes the reader realize that this has this happened, you know, right? So like that's how kind of how I feel about those narrative stories is that there's like four or five key details that like it all that actually are like the pins that sort of hold it, you know, together for the reader. And so sometimes you get a little bit, you know, too in love with those details, like that they, you know, uh, had a certain kind of scotch or whatever. <laughs> and, yeah, when, um, I, whenever you read this story, I was like, yeah, it kind of sounds like those are like uh, pretty good parties. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think to some extent, well, listen, like they're in the ambassadorial digs, you know, those are pretty good digs, and they have they've got all kinds of great stuff being flown in, and three four housekeepers, and you know, and cooks and stuff. So like, it's not bad living if you are not at under threat at any moment of being dragged out of the house. By, <laughs> by, by like zealots who might kill you, you know? And so that was the key sort of like part of the experience that I did not relay that is as well as in the movie. And it's not like Chris invented that. Like that is for sure, you know, like, you know, part of the story. And it's just, it was kind of interesting to see actually. So, I mean, you've got a story, a magazine story you wrote about uh, a fake Hollywood operation that was actually a political operation. Now your magazine story about a fake Hollywood operation about a real political operation has been adapted into a real movie <laughs> which uh, spends a good deal of its time as I understand it, kind of spoofing Hollywood. Can you like unpack all that uh, meta-ness for me? Yeah, there's this, yeah, there's sort of nested layers of reality in the thing though. There's like a, uh, this is a movie about a fake movie that in turn was sort of like taken up from the ashes of another fake movie. And I mean, one of the things that I liked about the original that attracted me to the story was that it was kind of this great caper and a yarn, but that had these interesting themes about, you know, artifice and reality and using uh, fiction to create nonfiction and sort of how Washington and Hollywood are sometimes in the same business and like projecting illusions can, you know, create something tangible. Um, even from the instance of like the hostage takeover, like to some extent, like there's an illusion created that an embassy is not the host country, that on one side of the wall it's Iran and the other side is the United States. And it's like something everybody agrees to until the first guy climbs over the gate and says, no, we do not accept this illusion. <laughs> the reality is we are <laughs> in your embassy. Um, and so, you know, so that's kind of a political illusion, you know, and so... Um, this I sort of like that, and that is carried all the way through. You know, it's I I I sort of like that um, that Chris Terrio explicitly put that in the script. I mean, he even has a like a really nifty kind of thing where he combined various aspects of the true story about like this press conference that when the CIA came to Hollywood and created their fake movie out of this other movie, Lord of Light. That movie had sort of crashed and burned spectacularly at this after this press conference where the guy was trying to drum up 
business for this movie. So he used a press conference to try to create an image that he's making the biggest movie of all time. Um, and he was going to build this theme park that would have a bowling alley staffed by robots. And Rosie Greer was there dressed like an alien. And it was this kind of ridiculous kind of stagecraft. And um, all the reporters there were like, this sounds fishy. And they started digging and realized that his production manager was embezzling the funds and it all sort of died, right? And so it turned out to be a fake movie. CIA used that to make its own fake movie um, to kind of get, uh, to, to create a political reality. And now, of course, there's a movie that itself uses artifice. Um, and some very, very astute kind of cerebral viewers have asked if like it was intentional that there's some kind of double meta commentary where like the movie, which you know has been staged <laughs> at some point is also kind of commenting on the fact that you are being told an illusion now about, you know, using fiction to create nonfiction and that, you know, viewers will think this is real. Um, I don't think that that yeah, was intended. I, mean, I, I can say that uh, I am less sure now uh, <laughs> that you are not in the CAA than I was yesterday. I know it's all, it's all about mirrors, mirrors within mirrors. Um, that is totally a CIA guy's answer to that question. <laughs> exactly. Doesn't quite answer it, but doesn't not answer it. Um, but no, I actually, and I really like that. Like, this is kind of like, it's a big movie and it's a, basically a thriller that's all exciting, but it also gets at these really interesting, um, you know, uh, themes and, uh, you know, like statecraft and stagecraft and, you know, art and fiction and reality and stuff that, uh, you know, you don't normally see in a movie like that. So I, I, I'm excited that, that, it's sort of true to like even the like weird subtextual themes that are a way that started with the article. When when you were reporting it, were there any other great uh, like anecdotes that you came up with? I mean, I, you know, a guy like Tony Bennett, it feels like uh, there's got to be more stories there. Yeah, well, the 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 initial sort of the alternate lead that I wrote uh, was about this one mission that Tony um, executed in Laos, uh, which uh, was neutral during the Vietnam War. This is earlier. This is like 73 or somewhere in there. And Laos being neutral was also the staging ground for all kinds of, you know, espionage. And so the Russians and the Chinese and the Vietnamese and the Cambodians, everybody had their, their agents there looking for information. And so the CIA, a black CIA officer, which was, I think, fairly unusual at the time, and certainly was stood out like a sore thumb in Laos, um, had cultivated a asset in the, well, I think, one of the ministries of the Laotian government and needed to get information from him. And at the time, there were so many spies in there that Tony tells a funny story about how, like, the main traffic circle in Vien Shan, the cultural capital of Laos, sometimes, like, an agent would pull up and to pick up an asset and like the wrong asset would get in. He was like waiting for the Russian spy and he got into like the Chinese spy's car, <laughs> you know, like that's how, many, that's how much kind of like subterfuge and, you know, kind of like hijinks was going on. And so, and there was this one instance where like, I think they needed to get those, the, the black CIA officer and the Laotian minister had to get out of the country or get somewhere in secret. And so Tony already being hooked up with his pal, John Chambers called and said, Hey, I need some, masks to disguise these guys. So John Chambers sent masks that are, you know, these kind of full latex masks with the hair and everything. And um, so he man, and it worked, he managed to disguise these two guys as, you know, regular old kind of white dudes who were like having tea, like, you know, somewhere in public and discussing matters of interest. Or I think also they had to get out through a roadblock at one point. So there was kind of all this stuff that was pulled off with these two guys. And the sort of especially funny thing about it was, John Chambers, I don't know if it was a current movie or a previous movie, but for whatever reason, the two masks that he had and which he sent were for Victor Mature and Rex Harrison. And so, 
So it looked like Victor Mature and Rex Harrison were sort of like, you know, palling around uh, Laos together in 1973. <laughs> and, no one, and no one cared. Uh, apparently not. It was a wild success. But now you know that if you ever see Victor Mature and Rex Harrison sort of like in the shadows in the Piazza San Marco or somewhere, then like there is espionage happening. <laughs> uh, this is the first story you had optioned. And, you know, it can't really go a whole lot better than this, right? The actual <laughs> guy that you were fantasizing about optioning the story <laughs> does. It goes and gets made. You're happy with how closely it's stuck to your story. Uh, it's now got you know, as much like Oscar buzz as I can imagine the movie having kind of, um, are you going to, are you now starting to choose stories based on topics that will work well for movies? I mean, is that in your mind when you're looking around for the next piece you're going to do? Uh, well, first let me just, um, thank you for reminding me that it is in fact all downhill from here. (laughs) (laughs) And I have thought about this many times, you know, well, I guess that's it. Better enjoy it, you know. And um, the but, uh, the, the point question, of this whole podcast just to make you feel bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The point is always to just you know celebrate someone's achievement as the high water mark of their career. Absolutely. I mean, I just if there's a way that I could bring you down a peg or two, I'd love to. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, but you know, I as for the question about sort of like the narrative, like the sort of the cinematic appeal of of stories, I definitely you know saw like for me, I think the light bulb went on when this story was optioned, um, and I was you know at that time I had done other you know I had done cultural essays and criticism and reviews and a lot of political reportage, um, which for some reason you one always says reportage only in reference to <laughs> political <laughs> reportage. But, um, and I had done all kinds of other stuff, but I was starting to get into narrative writing, which I knew because I was attracted to like kind of weird stories or unusual people and stuff like that. And I have, an, I have kind of a high tolerance for crazies, you know? So I had done this piece about Billy Mitchell, the world's, you know, sort of, uh, sort of most celebrated competitive classic video game player, and had spent a lot of time with that dude and all the kind of weirdos around him. And that was a piece for Harper's, and I think this was my second narrative piece. But I had all these other ones that I wanted to do, and I started realizing that the pieces that were coming were, you know, kind of like stories with a beginning, middle, and end, and like, you know, kind of a strong character or whatever. And so I don't really choose my stories around... Like, like I don't really choose what interests me, obviously. Like, the stories kind of come, and I keep this, like, long list of always, at all times, of, like, here's this kind of cool story. But as you try to flesh out, like, what little weird link could become a larger narrative story, you know, the selection process there starts to select for stories that, you know, true life tales that the movie people also could potentially be interested in because they're just that kind of story. And since I had an experience in like that process, I think it's only once you kind of see it in action that you're like, oh, I can, yeah, sure. This next story can also be like that. And you kind of know how to like steer the story. Uh, I mean, not in the writing, but once it's done, because, you know, like in the magazine process, like you sort of just still have to like satisfy the magazine and your editor and like, the story sort of is the print story for its own purposes and for the venue and like how much space you got and whatever. Um, so you, so I don't really, you know, or I certainly try not to, um, you know, tinker with the story with the movie in mind, but I certainly do now as like, Oh, this story, you know, like 
you know, this is a good one. And like the story yeah. also could have some legs, you know? <laughs> and so, so yeah, so I've gotten sort of excited about that. And I've, and several, some of my other stories have been, have been, um, have gone off into the, you know, sort of entertainment into the development pipeline, which almost always means nothing, by the way, <laughs> um, and doesn't go anywhere. So it's like rather a miracle that this has, that this has happened. How are you going to celebrate tomorrow, man? We're, we're taping this on a Thursday afternoon and, and the movie opens on Friday. That is a good question. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. What should I do? You should go see it. I'll go see it. I should go see it with like a big, uh, you know, opening night audience somewhere. The Man yeah. Chinese. Maybe it's playing at the Man Chinese. I bet you it is. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Man Chinese. I'm going to bring a hammer. I'm going to break up the footprints and handprints of some existing, you know, like Clark Gable or something. <laughs> Pour my own cement <laughs> and then put my hands and feet there and kind of like write my own name in there. I think, um, I think that's pretty much the only option. I don't see how else you could spend your Friday night. Or I might go to, there's a theater in Pasadena where I grew up called the Academy Theater, which sounds fancy, like it has something to do with like the Motion Picture Academy, but actually it's just like the super ghetto theater that has been broken into like six different tiny little theaters and which costs like $2 and where you can get White Castle like in the theater. <laughs> and um, that might be a good place to see it. Now those both sound like good options, but I think you should go see it. You should go and like you should just go see it and like and, and watch people experience it. I think that'd be uh, that'd yeah. Be nice. I might. I mean, I've seen it enough. It's like all right, I get it. They're gonna you know they're gonna make it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to say I totally actually, know, I totally know how this movie ends. I gotta say, I still I've seen it three times now, twice with an audience, and like I the third time I was like okay, like now I'm gonna kind of get bored, but I but I but I didn't. It is very well craft it like the you know like the actual it's it's like the way it is put together is it's very well done i'm totally biased you know <laughs> but like but i think i can objectively say it's it's a very well done movie oh, that sounds like uh that sounds like a blurb for the poster <laughs> yeah i think i should make a poster for it by the way that just where it quotes me where it's like i i'm biased but i think it's pretty good um <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey josh man thanks for um uh, thanks for taking the time and thank you in advance for all of the uh, incredible episodes of this podcast that you're about to host. Oh my God, they're going to be so good. <laughs> be fucking crazy. <laughs> the probing. Uh, all right, we'll talk to you soon, man. All right, talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer, will be back next week. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Go see Argo. Uh, it's going to rule. And if you want to read Joshua Behrman's original Wired story, it's up right now in full on longform.org. You can also read it in longform for iPad, which is available on iTunes. We'll see you next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. 
You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 